This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 14, The Peloponnesian War, Part 2. regarding the chronological timeline. In 479 BCE, the Athenians, supported by the Spartans, were able to expel the Achaemenid Persians from Greece, which ended the Persian invasions of Greece. After the Persians left, there was no longer an essential requirement for the Athenians and the Spartans to work together. The Spartans returned to the Peloponnese and their closest allies within the Peloponnese, while those other Greek city-states or polis formed the Delian League, with Athens as its main power. With Sparta and Athens at the heads of their respective confederations, distrust of each other manifested. Sparta was well known for protecting its own interests at home, always reluctant to venture out of the Peloponnese. Athens believed that its fate could be determined by gaining more power so that it could compete on a level footing with the Persians who had previously been a dominant threat. When Sparta suffered a massive earthquake in the 460s BCE, the Athenians could exploit the opportunity to gain more power and influence over the lands and polis of the Aegean. Sparta would see its own power and influence diminish as a consequence and now felt that its own national security could be in jeopardy as a consequence of the seemingly power-hungry Athenians becoming more imperial in their nature. Athens appeared to be unstoppable, but rebellions and some unexpected defeats enabled the Spartans to regain a firmer footing in the minds of other Greek polis, and some of those who had swapped their loyalties from Sparta to Athens in the past, such as Megara, were now rethinking their position, and some of those who had had pro-Athenian rulers installed by Athens, such as the Boeotian polis, were now overthrowing their rulers. It would be during the 440s BCE that Athens under the careful guidance of its long-time chief statesman Pericles, would accept that it had reached its peak of its capabilities and now needed to work out and how it could coexist with the newly recovered Spartan nation. The Thirty Years' Peace If Athens spent the early part of what we call the First Peloponnesian War taking power and influence for itself in the early 450s BCE, then the late part of the 440s BCE represented the correction of these actions. The Spartans and the Athenians decided that it was time to agree a peace treaty. Now was the perfect time, as it was a long time since Athens 
had to be disrespectful of the Spartans' power and influence. It always seemed that the Spartans' foreign policy was one of only getting involved in affairs outside of the Peloponnese if it was absolutely necessary, and the Spartans did not appear to be interested in destroying the Delian League, but just preventing Athens from compromising Spartan interests by involving itself in the affairs of its allies. A regional status was agreed, with a clear knowledge of which poles were allied to Sparta and Athens respectively, and which were neutral, and a promise not to attack each other for the next 30 years was agreed, and this was created in the mid-440s BCE. Was a peace between Athens and Sparta a real possibility, and could it endure the intended 30 years? Sparta were happy that they could continue their successful self-sufficient existence, while Athens knew that as long as it left Sparta and its allies alone, then it could be left alone to continue to dominate the Delian League. All was well. However, the Greek and Aegean area was not simply about two nations only. Corinth was always more closely linked to the Spartans and had always been a rival to the Athenians. Corinth was a wealthy polis in its own right and its opinion needed to be respected. So even if the Spartans were not keen on engaging in a military tussle with the Athenians, then the Corinthians still might be. Coupled with this, the fact that Megara and Aegina had also gratefully escaped Athenian influence at the end of the First Peloponnesian War, and there were definite tensions towards Athens by many of its neighbours, and that Athens would surely need to respect. It is difficult to work out how much the Spartans were still interested in warring with Athens. On the one hand, they didn't ever seem to be too eager on an all-out war with Athens, even potentially walking away from opportunities to crush the city of Athens itself. Sparta's slave class was the infamously maltreated helots, and the Spartans simply could not understand why the Athenians had a strange desire to not maltreat their slave class, going as far as saying that a visitor to Athens would not be able to tell the difference between a slave and a citizen. For the Athenians, they would look at the Spartans as a race devoid of any character, believing that the Spartan race to be similar to what we may describe today as a race of robots, in that they were all trained to be military men with no time for art and culture. However, it is interesting to take into account the report that was made on the subject of the Samian War in 440 BCE, in which the two Delium League poles. Miletus and Samos started warring with each other over territory. Despite both parties being in the Delian League, Athens decided to support the Milesians, and so Samos would approach the Spartans and the Peloponnesian League for help. This was typical of the time when if one league was unwilling to help, you would either threaten to, or simply go to the other and ask for assistance. 
However, there is evidence of it being the Corinthians who suggested that Peloponnesian League intervention was unwise, and it was the traditionally introverted Spartans who were interested in breaking the peace. However, a fearless and aggressive side of Corinth was exemplified by the Corinthian invasion of Corcyra, which is known today as the island of Corfu. The Corcyraeans approached Athens for assistance. Athens was very interested by this. Corinth and Athens never liked each other, and Athens saw value in having a strong naval ally in Corcyra. Sparta would be concerned that Athens was only interested in supporting Corcyra in order to gain a position that threatened the Peloponnesian League. From here, we see a sequence of events which ultimately plunged Greek societies into war. Apportioning the blame for the breakdown of peace is a difficult task. Each party would blame each other, and each report, whether contemporary or after, would condemn the decisions and acts of each party. One of the main sources for the entire sequence of events was written by Thucydides in an eight-book account. Thucydides himself was an Athenian historian who was alive during the Peloponnesian War, so it was a first-hand account. However, as we go through the story, we have to understand that Thucydides would have had an emotional connection to the events and therefore some of the content can and is often brought into question. Thanks to Athens becoming involved in Corinthian affairs at the Battle of Sibata between Corcyra and Corinth, Corinth decided to get involved with the Battle of Potidaea, supporting the Potidaeans against Athens. The Athenians would then impose trade sanctions on the Megarans, and so this would trigger the Corinthians to ask for a convention of the Peloponnesian League members to discuss what should be done about the actions of Athens. The Corinthians convinced the Spartans that Athens had violated the terms of the 30-year peace by imposing economic sanctions on Megara, and the Spartans agreed that this was enough cause to revoke the peace agreement between the Peloponnesian League and Athens. Despite Athens seemingly believing in its own right to influence affairs in Greek lands to suit itself, it does seem that it was definitely the Corinthians who wanted a military conflict between Sparta and Athens, and it is possible that the Spartans could not afford to ignore their powerful Corinthian allies any longer, or risk losing their alliance altogether. Athenian Retreat The biggest issue that Athens would have if the Spartans attacked them is that the Spartans could march on Attica, which would eliminate the dominance of the Athenian navy and highlight the supreme abilities of the Spartan hoplite phalanxes. Pericles, still at the forefront of Athenian politics around this period, believed that the best course of action would be for the Athenians to withdraw inside the city walls that had been built around 30 years previous, 
knowing that their naval fleet was strong enough to be able to keep supplies coming into the city should the Spartans attempt to lay the city of Athens under siege. The age of Pericles is traditionally thought of as the time when Pericles was the most trusted man in Athenian politics. Athens felt great and powerful and safe under Pericles. Pericles was often the wise man of Athens who knew when it was right to attack and knew when it was right to not get involved. Pericles supported the development and modernisation of Athens culturally into a polis to be admired by her allies and a place where loyalties would be best invested, especially by those within the Delian League. So when Pericles advised the Athenians to retreat within the city walls, the populace trusted him. The problem was that Athens was not simply all about the city of Athens, but about the wider polis, including the societies of the Attica Peninsula. These countryside societies felt that they too would be safer within the city walls of Athens, so many people gathered in the city itself, and the city itself was not fully prepared for this. However, if any city could survive attack and siege, it would be the walled city of Athens, with its superior naval ability to keep the bulging city alive. What happened next could not have been foreseen. But with what we have just described, should not be a major surprise to us. But it would change Greece forever. Athens resisted the Spartan pressure until the year 430 BCE. The unusually dense population of the city of Athens was struggling, however, and a plague broke out among the people. In such a densely populated city, the containment of a plague was almost impossible. The plague may have entered the city through the port of Piraeus, whose link to the city of Athens was protected by those huge city walls constructed at the start of Pericles' tenure in control of Athens. However, once it was in, it was in, and the results were devastating. The plague would cause people to fall ill, and the outcome would often be death. The usual laws of social decorum began to break down as people genuinely feared for their lives and lawlessness ensued. Those who contracted the illness could often be abandoned to die by others who were scared of contracting the highly contagious disease themselves. Huge burning heaps were created to cremate those bodies to prevent further spreads of infection. Aristocrats and slaves alike were exposed to the same deadly dangers. The historian Thucydides was actually within the walls of Athens at the time, and he himself fell ill. However, he recovered from the illness, so the plague was not a certain death sentence, and those who developed immunity were able to take more care of the ill. Social status was not something that the plague considered. 
even Pericles and his family fell ill. Pericles would sadly watch as his two young sons, Paralus and Xanthippus, both succumbed to the disease. But further tragedy struck when Pericles himself also died from the plague of Athens. The plague would continue before disappearing around 426 BCE in what had become an extremely grim existence for the Athenians, where they may have seen as many as one in three people die, which could account for as many as 100,000 of the population. This would change Athens forever. Kaleon While Athens was reeling from this disaster, Sparta would be attacking its allies, such as Plataea. There was still a war going on, and Athens was far from defeated. Athens would still have its superior naval capabilities, and the city of Athens itself was still protected from human invasion by its walls. Once the plague had gone, the Athenians could plan their counter-offensive, albeit with their depleted population numbers. The prominent official in Athens after Pericles was a man named Calaion. Calaion was a man with aggressive counter-attacking intent and he realised that the Athenian navy was the key to rebalance the war situation. Athens would engage the Spartan fleet at the Battle of Pylos in 425 BCE where they would score a big win. Peace negotiations would break down in the aftermath resulting in the Athenians forcing the remaining Spartan troops to be captured. Neither side could really press home their advantage with little victories going either way. The notable difference was the fact that the Athenians were demonstrating a more aggressive stance under Calaion. The Spartans would adopt a different approach, knowing that the Athenians were pulling on the resources of the Delian League. The Spartans decided to hit a major supply centre for the Athenians by targeting the Thracian silver mines of the polis of Amphipolis. The Spartan general who was responsible for the campaign against Amphipolis was a man called Brasidas. He actually besieged Amphipolis, which prompted the city to call for help from Athens. The man that was sent was Thucydides. This is the very same Thucydides who wrote so many historical scripts that we constantly refer to him as a viable source for much of what was going on in Greek lands during this time. Thucydides' role as a part of the historical story himself was as an Athenian general. By the time that Thucydides reached Amphipolis, he found the Spartan general Brasidas had struck a deal with the citizens and some of the other surrounding cities. When Thucydides returned to Athens with news of the Spartan successes, Thucydides himself was exiled for his tardiness and his failure to save Amphipolis. 
and it would be Kaleon himself who would set off to deal with the problem. Both Spartan and Athenian armies comprised of more than 2,000 men each. Both Brasidas and Kaleon participated in the battle. And what's more, both Brasidas and Kaleon were killed in the battle. The ultimate outcome was not good for Athens, as Sparta was able to hold its position. With Kaleon out of the way, the Athens would not be goaded into battle quite so readily, as was the tendency of Kaleon as the general. It would be time to try and negotiate a peace treaty. Peace Possibly the two greatest events that equalised the relationship between Athens and Sparta during the 5th century BCE were natural events. The earthquake of Sparta in 464 BCE and the plague of Athens in the early 420s BCE. In such a long-term rivalry, it was not feasible for the two parties to be at constant war with each other. However, it was vitally important that one didn't let the other get too powerful, so it would have been a constant game of chess between the two nations, with each decision having potentially huge and even lethal ramifications for the respective polis. Who would honestly want to be responsible for the next major decision for one of these nations? After Sparta had caused huge problems for Athens, who were still recovering from the devastating plague, the Athenians were forced to release the Spartan prisoners captured after the Battle of Pylos. An agreement about apportioning lands affected by the wars was reached and the two parties agreed a 50-year peace, going one step further from the 30-year peace 25 years before. It would always be favourable for these two nations to not go to war with each other and expend all of their resources. If you remember, it was Corinth who pushed Sparta into breaking the peace in the first place. During the 5th century BCE, a lot of focus is on Athenian imperialism. Many historians toy with the idea of calling the Delian League the Athenian Empire. However, Sparta regarded it as important to be dominant over the members of the Peloponnesian League. The Peloponnesian polis of Argos was always a polis that opposed Sparta, its neighbour. Sparta's historical attempts to bring Argos into its sphere of influence had always failed due to Argos's resilience, but Argos was really not a polis who had any desire to interject itself on international affairs or politics. Even though it was impossible to remain completely neutral in the torrid world of ancient Greece, Argos did a great job of trying to be that polis. They allied with Athens for a period during the 5th century BCE, but their contributions towards the alliance seemed to be comparatively tentative. Nonetheless, Argos's unique attitude meant that it was gaining a reputation among other polis, and Argos would try to form its own league of polis, 
to rival both the Peloponnesian and the Delian. However, the concept really didn't take off. The Corinthians and Boeotians didn't fully commit to the league and ultimately Argos turned back to its old ally Athens to support its defiance of Spartan dominance. The culmination of this sequence of events would come at the Battle of Mantinea in the heart of the Peloponnese in 418 BCE. The Spartans would defeat the Argives in this huge battle and then tensions began to simmer down once again. Sicily One of the speculated reasons for the Athenian interference in the Egyptian rebellion against the Persians back in 454 BCE was the fact that Egypt was agriculturally rich and that Athens could benefit from having a close trade relationship with an area of the world so rich in grain produce. That expedition ultimately failed and the tensions between Athens and Persia ended with a truce as the two parties could not achieve an advantage over each other. So Athens could focus on the development of the Delian League and their differences with Sparta throughout the period following. However, the question of Athenian costs and resources was always something important. The reason that Sparta attacked Amphipolis in 422 BCE was to affect the flow of valuable silver from Amphipolis to Athens. Another ally of Athens and another place of resource was the city of Segesta on the island of Sicily. We mentioned the city of Segesta right the way back in volume 2 during episode 9 as the city who approached the Carthaginians for help in their war with another Sicilian city, Salinas. Some Athenian politicians were very much against becoming involved, fearing for the expense of a war that they may not need to fight. However, it was the Athenian general, Alcibiades, who was keen to become involved in Sicilian affairs as these lands were rich in agricultural resources and it might create an opportunity for the Athenians to rebuild their sphere of influence and threaten the Spartan allies of Sicily, the Syracusans. Thousands of men on dozens of ships made their way over from Athens to Sicily. The Athenian general, Alcibiades, was not among them. Alcibiades had been accused of a sacrilegious act of defacing statues in order to bring bad fortune on the Sicilian expedition. Fearing for his own life in Athens, Alcibiades defected to Sparta and disclosed vital information about Athenian intentions. So when the Athenians successfully started to besiege the city of Syracuse, the Corinthians and the Spartans sent their own military force to help to defend the city. Not only did they successfully defend the city of Syracuse, but they were also able to entrap both the Athenian hoplites and the Athenian navy. This would be a crushing blow for the Athenians as they would witness many of their men either killed or enslaved 
and much of the Athenian naval fleet was destroyed while blockaded in the Syracusan harbour. Athens While all of these Athenians were over in Sicily, the absence of military was being exploited by the Spartans in Attica, who were disrupting Athenian trade routes and compelling Athens to call on the support of its Delian League allies. The issue was that their Delian League allies were not particularly thrilled about offering support to Athens, who were demonstrating incompetence by sending troops to Sicily while there was a situation actually within their heartlands. Rebellion within the Delian League would attract the attention of the Achaemenid monarch Darius II, a man who we have not mentioned previously. Darius would see an opportunity to avenge the pressures incurred on what the Persians would view as their Ionian possessions in Anatolia, lost during the reign of Darius II's grandfather, Xerxes I. So the Achaemenid Persians would actually pledge their resources to the Spartan cause, effectively breaking the long-term de facto peace between Athens and Persia. Things were becoming extremely grim for Athens, as the walls were closing in on the polis, and rebellion within the Delian League meant that confidence within the polis was at an all-time low. The democratic regime was just not providing the solutions required and rebellion was now taking place in the city itself. A group of people who we refer to as the 400 took over the rule of Athens in 411 BCE after a coup had been staged against the democracy. At a similar time, the polis of Samos, which was the home of some of the remaining Athenian naval fleet, turned to an old character in the story named Alcibiades. This is the same man who turned his back on Athens and defected to the Spartans during the Sicilian expedition a few short years before. This seemed to be quite popular with the Athenians who simply wanted to see somebody install some hope for Athenian futures. As such, the 400 were also overthrown and Alcibiades set to work commanding the Athenian fleet to some small victories. These naval victories renewed Athenian hopes that had been missing for a considerable time and despite being a traitor to Athens he was allowed to return and all his previous sins against the polis were forgiven and forgotten. The most influential politician in Athens now was a man called Calaiophon and following the victories that were achieved by Alcibiades and others, the Spartans sued for peace, which was something that we may not have been expecting when we consider how dominant the Spartans have been over the Athenians in the more recent years. The Spartans would have to accept that the Athenians were in no mood to not capitalise on the upturn of their fortunes and would turn to their own naval commander, Lysander, to prepare for the next phase of the conflict. Alcibiades would be responsible for a fleet of just under a hundred Athenian ships that would be engaged in a conflict with the Spartan fleet of a similar number 
at the Battle of Nottium in 406 BCE, but Alcibiades opted not to personally lead the fleet, instead putting another commander called Antiochus in charge of the fleet with strict instructions not to engage with Lysander's Spartan fleet. Antiochus did not follow these instructions and suffered a defeat to Lysander at the battle. Antiochus lost his life and Alcibiades lost his role as commander. He was exiled from Athens for his error in judgment and the loss of Alcibiades' naval command acumen may have been highly consequential for the Athenians. However, initially the Athenians would win a similar naval battle further north along the Anatolian coastline at the Battle of Arginusi later in the same year and this would lead the Spartans to sue for peace again. The Spartans did not want to continue to waste valuable resources on what they saw as a pointless battle. For the Spartans, they had weakened the Athenians enough that they no longer posed a serious threat to its own existence and that was ordinarily what the Spartans cared about most. However, the general arrogance of the Athenians seemed to know no limits and believing that the resources of the Delian League would create a strong treasury capable of bankrolling an eventual victory over the Spartans, Cleophon refused the peace. The culmination of affairs took place when Lysander took the Spartan fleet to the vital waterway of the Hellespont, which the Athenians had enjoyed the benefits of on many occasions. The Athenian fleet followed the Spartan fleet, but Lysander initially refused to engage, which led the Athenians to dock in the harbour of Aegospotomy. While the sailors had disembarked to recuperate on land, Lysander struck the Athenian fleet. The Athenians could not act quickly enough and the result was an absolute disaster. Lysander absolutely destroyed the Athenian fleet. This was the same Athenian navy that was the envy of all the Greek lands for many, many decades and now what remained had been wiped out. The Athenian navy was also the Athenian lifeline. Without their navy, the Athenians could not gather the resources of the Aegean that held its economy together. Lysander now just needed to return to the Balkan Peninsula and make sure that Athens was suitably neutralised so that no more Spartan resources would be wasted fighting in these pointless and expensive exchanges that were hurting the Spartan economy. Lysander ruthlessly besieged the city of Athens itself. Six months later, and with no naval capabilities, Athens surrendered to Lysander. The defensive walls were destroyed, and the Delian League was officially disbanded. The year was 404 BCE, and the Peloponnesian War was finally over. Athens would never be 
a dominant political power in Greek lands ever again. This was the end of an era. Accounts suggest that Alcibiades, the renegade Athenian commander, sought refuge in Achaemenid Persia following his exile, and it was not long into this exile that he was tracked down and killed, possibly by a contingent sent by Lysander. While Lysander had held Athens under siege during the final episodes of the Peloponnesian War, the stubborn Athenian politician Calaiophon wanted to still defy the Spartans and continue a futile war against them. His peers would have him arrested for his reckless attitude and he would be condemned to death during the siege. As for Lysander, he would continue to lead Spartan forces into the 4th century BCE and he would ultimately lose his life in battle during the Corinthian War some 10 years later. Next time, we are going to focus on a battle which occurred just over 30 years after the conclusion of the Peloponnesian War and represents an important part of the Spartan story going forward from the events of this episode. It is the Battle of Leuctra, which took place in the year 371 BCE. terrifically fascinating episode in Greek history and there's probably a few things that we can add on to the end of that. I felt that the description of the plague of Athens was quite poignant at this time. If you're listening to this episode um, as it's been published rather than down the line in the future, uh, it's right in the thick of uh, the current COVID-19 pandemic and with that going on around us, I think discussing the plague of Athens has been incredibly poignant this week. Uh, so I hope that the uh, the episode was as entertaining as it could be. This period of Greek history, especially where where Athens is concerned, um, is not necessarily completely defined by warfare. So. This whole 5th century BCE, we were looking at the battles uh, between Greece and Persia uh, initially, and then that changed into a, a battle between the Delian League and the Peloponnesian League. We actually need to revisit this period. Um, so we're not really finished with Athens yet. We have to look closely at some of the characters of Athens and some of the culture of Athens it's so, so vital to our historical narrative that it must be revisited. So there will be an episode after next week. So you've got the Battle of Leuctra, but then after that we'll be looking to revisit Athens during the 5th century BCE in particular, just to look at some of the cultural aspects. And um, absolutely vital. We've got to look at the arts, we've got to look at architecture, we've got to look at the philosophers, there is so much that needs to be covered and it's unignorable, so we have to come back and look at that in a couple of episodes' time. So for those of you who are enjoying the podcast, um, don't forget to recommend this podcast. If anyone is stuck at home at the moment because of events going on around the world, um, 
recommend to them that they can listen to the History of the World podcast. They may gain some pleasure out of um, immersing themselves in such a comprehensive view of the history of humankind. It could be uh, just what they need. If not this podcast, then there are many others that can also be quite enriching for someone who's unable to sort of leave their house. Um, we just don't know what that must be like if we're not experiencing it ourselves. So do recommend the podcast. And obviously, as ever, you can support the podcast by visiting the History of the World podcast.com website and navigating to the Patreon link where you can donate as little as $1 a month to help with the upkeep of the podcast. When you do that, you are made a member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. And we have a new member of the Illuminati this week. His name is Frank R. Galati. So thank you very much and welcome, Frank, to the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. You are now a lifelong member. Anyone that does become a History of the World podcast Illuminati member uh, are entitled to the associated benefits. So we we give you um, opportunities and gifts when you accrue um, any lifetime uh, contribution towards the podcast. So look out for those. They're all detailed on the Patreon page for the podcast. If you're unable to make any financial contribution, that's absolutely fine. You can still support the podcast and you can do so by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to us. A couple of reviews that have come through this week. We've got Mountain Man Drew from the United States of America who's written, uh, educational, my degree is in biology, but I'm very interested in paleoanthropology. This podcast does a great job of combining hard sciences with soft sciences. It is very educational. And also we've got one from Naplaville in Russia. So I don't think we've had a Russian um, podcast review, which is fantastic. Who's put um, halfway through the first volume and there is nothing to dislike. Very informative and interesting to listen. Uh, discovering so much new knowledge. Amazing. Thank you, Chris, for doing this great work. Wonderfully structured and nicely narrated. Thank you very much and thank you for reviewing from Russia. So like that, last week we had reviews from Israel and, and emails from Iran. Um, so it's a real diversity of, um, you know, it's great the podcast itself can reach out to many, many different countries and um, it's fantastic. And, you know, also, you know, I don't want to dwell too much on what's going on at the moment. But as, an, as a globe, we're all sort of suffering together at the moment. Um, but then also this also reflects on how we can all come together and enjoy the same sort of thing together we can enjoy education together so um it's encouraging to say the least don't forget to check out the youtube channel for the history of the world podcast you can access it through the interact section of the history of the world podcast.com website um there is a new video on there it's the first one that Nick Barksdale of the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages YouTube channel has tackled from Volume 1. 
uh, and it's about Neolithic Mesopotamia. I'm sure we've all forgotten about that episode. That was uh, some time ago now. And um, it really does um, put into some kind of visual perspective the uh, the information of that episode, which is ever so helpful because it does explore um, the timeline of cultures and also the lands of Mesopotamia, North and South Mesopotamia. So it's very, very helpful to have that visual aid to the information in the podcast. So I encourage you to go and check that out. It's a new one on the YouTube channel and uh, you can access it through the Interact section of the History World Podcast website. So we're going to leave it now for this week. Don't forget, if I if you have rated and reviewed the podcast or you've sent me a message and I haven't read it out, please do remind me. I do like to read them out, and um, I am receiving uh, feedback from many, many different forums, and, and sometimes it can be easy for me to miss the odd message here and there. So it's not an intention, but we uh, we do sometimes make that mistake uh, inadvertently. So do give me a nudge and I will promise to read it out. Please do take good care of each other and uh, take care of yourselves. Um, we will meet up again in seven days' time and thank you so much for listening to this week's podcast. We'll see you again very soon. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.